Before we dig into our text tonight, I'm going to pray here in just a second. I want to really set the stage for what's going to follow. Because it is absolutely essential that we as the body of Christ grab some truths as we look at these very difficult passages of Scripture. Um, Tonight's PG-13. If you have kids in here, I'm not seeing too many. Um, Tonight's going to be PG-13. Next week's will also... The next study that we have after Amir will be PG-13. So I want to really strongly encourage you, uh, if you have young children in here, uh, they can go to the junior high, to the high school, or to their appropriate aged uh, classes that we have for children, because we are going to be talking about adult subject matter a little bit later in this study. But before we dig into the Word, I'm going to pray and just ask that God would give the proper balance between grace and and truth because you can't have grace and not have truth and you can't have truth without grace you need to have both and these passages that we're about to touch on are the most contested uh, I believe in the entirety of scripture Um, they are the ones that are in the front of the public's view right now and they touch on subjects subject matter Uh, that is even in the forefront of our political agendas. And so before we dig in, would you join me and let's pray. Father, we have come, Lord, not to hear a man speak, but to hear God speak. And so we ask, Lord, that you would adjust the notes, that you would take the truths of your word and make them alive to us. And Father, we're grateful for your word, even the difficult passages. And so, Lord, we ask and pray uh, that as we study your word tonight, that we would be strengthened, that we would know truth and never fail to speak the truth, but that we would always speak that truth seasoned with grace and in love. And so, Lord, balance those things for us tonight, we pray by your spirit. And it's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. I want to share with you some adjustment points. Number one, let me begin because people will watch this on the on the net. They may be listening online. Perhaps you're not in the room. Make no mistake, God's love is rich. It's free by grace and through faith to all who believe. That's an absolute fact. And God offers that grace via salvation which comes to us by believing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of flavor of sinfulness from which you may have come. You need to also know that repentance of sin is an absolute essential for you to declare that you're a child of God. Nowhere in Scripture does the Bible say that you get to keep your sin and have Jesus too. He sets us free from the bondage of sin and its penalty death. For us as believers, there is never a reason, there is never a cause for us to dismiss, demean, diminish, ridicule, spitefully speak of, 
any other human being on the face of this earth. As we've already seen in this amazing book, God's creative power, his uniqueness, is clearly evidenced in all that is created. And so everything God created, he has made perfectly, he has made us as humankind in his image fearfully and wonderfully, including human sexuality. And he alone determines how that sexuality functions. What makes it good? What will destroy it? It is God's will that you and I as Christians, as Christians, and notice what I said, as Christians, because an unbeliever knows not the things of God, as Christians, that we are commanded to live our lives holy as he is holy. There's no place in Scripture where where there's a filthy Christian, a debauched Christian, a Christian who cares not that they're deep in sin. No matter what a person's disposition, no matter what their distraction, no matter what degradation they may have been in, God's grace is offered to all men equally, including those caught in the most heinous, the most perverse of all sin. By no means does the Bible ever allow for there to be any zero sex between anyone other than a man and a woman who are husband and wife. Why am I saying that? Because that also includes 15-year-olds who are not married to each other and people who are in male-female relationships, heterosexuals, that declare their love for each other and thereby they go play house. That is sin. And we must call all sin, sin, not some sin, sin. We have to speak the truth and love about all sin, including the popular sins. No sexual relations outside of God's original design and his perfect plans and purposes. That means that adultery, fornication, lust, Pornography and homosexuality are all condemned by the Bible. Every last one of those things. Not just one of those things. A point that's important to me. As the church, God has never made the church nor an individual Christian the arbiter of when someone is struggling with sin and when someone is immersed in it. That is God's job alone. And we need to be very careful about how we judge. We are to judge believers by their fruit, but we are to expect sinners without a Savior to be deep in sin. 
the reason Jesus came, to set him free. We must also never approve of sin, and we also cannot confuse the approval of sin with love. Because some people go so far as to say, well, I'll just agree with the sin, and I'll call it love. That is not love. And finally, we are absolutely for equality. Did you hear what I said? Going to make some of you cringe a little bit. We are absolutely for equality. But that equality extends only in love and kindness and value of all humanity. It does not extend to unbridled immorality. It does not extend to sin in any flavor in the body of Christ. And if we are going to call people equal, we must also call out sin equally. And so as we begin and dig in, we start fair. We start equal. We start in a place where every last one of us before the grace of God tonight can be healed of anything and everything, including the sin that you committed before you came to church tonight. For if we are asking God, if we will confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Amen. Father, bless us tonight now with your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 24 here in Romans 1. And therefore, and you'll see very quickly why I just did what I just did. Therefore, because remember, what can be known about God can be seen through his creation. If you missed last week's, go online and watch it. God's imprinted his fingerprints on all of creation, including humanity. His greatest creation. Make no mistake about it, of all creation, we alone as humankind were made in his image. But if mankind will not worship God, then we will worship something. And to worship anything but God is to declare that you have allegiance to someone other than God. And Christ himself said that you are either for me or you are against me. And there is no middle ground with Christ. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness. You see, the result of worshiping something other than God, especially when that something is yourself, which is a vast majority of mankind without Jesus, The result of that is God says, okay, if that's what you want, I don't want it for you, but I will let you do that because I want your love to be real so your choices must also be volitional and real. And therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, to the lust of their heart, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. And you're going to see very quickly this whole passage is about sexual sin. And it focuses in on a very 
particular sexual sin that we call in our day and time homosexuality. To dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchange the truth of God for a lie. You see, if you don't believe that you were created in God's image, and if you believe that you are the one who judges what is good and what is right, and there is no one outside of space and time who has determined that for us and created us and given us a set of boundaries wherein we are supposed to function, if you will not believe that and you believe you're the sinner, then you make up your own rules as you go. And as you look at our world, you can easily see that that is exactly how we have gotten to where we are. We have made up our own rules as we go. The sexual revolution of the 60s is bearing its greatest fruit right now in our day and time. When I grew up, when I was, at, when I was in, especially when I was in elementary school and junior high era, a vast majority of all marriages, people stayed married. If you got divorced, it was considered a stain on your family. Adultery was a crime still in the state of California. You could actually go to jail for it. And we've gone from that to I can sleep with anybody I want, including someone of the same sex, including someone else's wife or husband. I can just do whatever pleases me. Because I am the center, I am my own God, and I'm here to please me. That is a vast majority of our culture, unfortunately, today, is leaning that direction. And if you don't believe that, the statistics clearly bear this out. More than 50% of all marriages, Christian or not, end in divorce. More than 50% of all people don't even take the time anymore to get married. There are more people living together today in sin, by the way, than there are married together. Over 50% of all children are born out of wedlock. 68% of all black children do not ever see birth. They are killed via abortion. Check it out. Go to the CDC. Go to their website. You don't think that we have a problem with immorality in our country and in our world. You are sadly, sadly, sadly mistaken. And it's taking a toll. It is killing our children. I told you it wouldn't be easy who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature. And that creature can be any creature, including us. Because we also are creatures created in God's image. He's really referring to the rest of the creation. But it can be ourselves. Rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. You see, there's, almost, there's a little doxology there in the middle. You've got a choice. You can either worship that which is created, including man, or you can worship God who is blessed forevermore. That's your choice. You're either for me or you're against me. You either love me or you do not. And for this reason, notice this again. God uses this phrase to direct our attention for this reason. It's the same as the therefore. 
Therefore, God gave them up. And notice now, God gave them up again to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. That is a sad commentary on the state of affairs. When every single day, every single day, you pull up your browser and your eyes are assaulted with what woman is making out with what woman. And what woman has come out of the closet with whomever else that they're in their relationship with. And it is bragged about and it is put forth in such a way that it is supposed to be somehow normal. It's not normal. It is against nature. It's exactly what God's word says. That's not my opinion. If we are believers in Christ, the same Bible that says you are saved by grace and through faith also says that this is against the created order of how God has actually made us. So God's not okay with it. God is not pro-homosexual activity. He's very anti-homosexual activity. Now, having said that, he loves every last person who's engaged in it. And we need to find a way to reach out to people. But we cannot, never can we say, it's okay. Because God says it's not. So if you have a problem with that, you need to talk to God. Because he made us the way we are. He defined human sexuality and he put it in a very narrow context. Men and women alone who are married to each other. Not anyone, anywhere, anytime, place, And that's what it's turned into. And likewise also men leaving the natural use of the woman. Now if it wasn't clear the first time, now it gets even clearer. The natural use of the woman. The sexual function of a couple. A man and a woman. Leaving that and burned in their lust for one another. Men committing that which is shameful with other men. And receiving themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And then he goes on to tell us what the result of that is. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, they began to say, well, maybe there isn't a God. We'll just factor him out of the equation. And because of that, again, God gave them over. He gave them up. He gave them up. Now he gives them over. He said, if that's what you want to do, I will not stop you because I love you and I want your love to be real. So you have to make the choice to love me as I have made the choice to love you. But if that's the way you want to go, then I will give you over to the mental processes that cause you to stay there. God gave them over to a debased mind, a mind that no longer seeks after the things of God, but seeks after the things of the flesh. To do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness and sexual immorality. 
Now here's the good news. For all we have sinned and gone astray, every one of us has turned to our own way. The sins of all of us, the iniquities of us all were laid upon Jesus. So there's a way, there's a path. The cross cries out to all who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's not a singular group of people that can be saved. It's every group of people that can be saved. But the only way that people will even recognize that they need a Savior is if we call sin, sin. If you tell someone, and we could switch this around in any infinite number of ways. If I were to pull out of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. And say from here on out, anyone who murders anyone. It's okay with God. That would be just as wrong as condoning any other sin, including the sin of homosexuality. Or the sin of adultery. So let's take it another step further. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Look what happened when we started to say, well, you know what? The cure for adultery is divorce. Where has that taken us? It's taken us to no-fault divorce. That's where it's taken us. And it's taken us to the destruction of families. So when mankind disagrees with God, as we have already done on adultery, as we have already done on divorce, it has not resulted in good things. And let me give you some understanding of that. It's believed, again, by the the General Accounting Office of the United States government that the raw cost of divorce in the United States of America on average annually is about $1.6 billion just for the cost of managing divorces. That's not including the financial cost to the families that are destroyed, the split-up homes, the split-up cards, the split-up bank accounts, the children that are in multiple places. You see, the reason I'm telling you these things is when God says something, and he's very clear on it, that's supposed to be our path as the church. We're supposed to simply believe God for what he said. We're not in the negotiation business with God. So when God says something, he says it for a reason. And he says in this passage that what happens when people leave natural relationships, anatomically the human body has been made fearfully and wonderfully by God, including those parts which are sexual. God knew exactly what he was doing. He made that wonderful. But knowing that it's wonderful, he also defined how you're going to use it. And so what he said was this is where this belongs. It belongs in a nurturing, caring, committed environment where two people are going to stay together for the rest of their days and their children will also be nurtured and cared for and raised up and trained in the Lord. Not, well, you know, a family is whatever you make it. 
And again, I realize we're the church. The world understands not these things, but we as the church have failed to speak the truth in love. Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, Presbyterian Church USA, much of the Episcopal Church, some of the Anglican Church, all have shifted their position and deny that that's true. So if you're going to pull out the writings of Paul, then we will not know most of the major doctrines of the faith because they came through the writings of the Apostle Paul. So you need to be careful about what you yank out. People will often say, well, you know, with regard to homosexuality, I mean, Jesus never spoke on it. There's a reason for that. It was an anathema. Today in our country, homosexuals represent less than 3% of the total population. So 97% of people do not engage in homosexual behavior. So why would Jesus pull out something that was even less frequent and teach a parable on something like that when it was basically non-existent in the culture that he lived in? So be careful about trying to say what Jesus did or did not talk about being right and or wrong. Jesus spoke what he spoke because he's God and what he spoke we take to heart. But he also instructed the Apostle Paul and said, here's what I need you to say, Paul. And Paul went into places like Ephesus and Corinth and Colossae. And the problem was much bigger there than it was in Jerusalem. You see, as we look at these verses, when man unrepentantly sins, God pulls away. And you can see this. The Old Testament is rife with God speaking the same message. In Judges 10, there in verse 13, you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. If that's what you want to do, then I'm not going to defend you. Why would God do something like that? Because the suffering of the consequences of our sin point us away from the sin and back towards God. That's what it should do. The consequences of sin are painful for a reason. But we live in a world that tries to eliminate the consequences of sin. Have you ever wondered why we pass out birth control to 11 and 12-year-olds? Because we're trying to, rather than shape the culture that they live in and tell them the truth about what they're doing, we want to change so that they don't suffer the consequences of the sin so that they won't even recognize until they get older that what they're doing is destroying them. What do you do with human sexuality when you begin at 12 years old? The vast majority of us, when we hit our 20s, are barely capable of understanding the full ramifications of that relationship. I can guarantee you there's not a 12-year-old on this planet that's ready for that. Well, they may say they are. Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah is telling the story of this unfruitful vineyard and in verse 20 it says they're woe to those who call evil good you see when God says something's wrong 
it goes in the evil category. Everybody got that? That's how it's actually defined. When God says something's wrong, then it's against him. It thereby is something the enemy would have you do. So it goes in the evil camp. It's not that hard. People play mental gymnastics with the word of the Lord very often. Well, you know, is it really evil? Well, God said it was wrong. God said don't do it. God said his wrath is coming on people that do these things. You don't want to mess with that. That's not a place you want to go. Who called evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. In case you didn't get it the first time. Three different analogies of the same basic concept. Look, when God says something, he means exactly that. You see, very often we want to do things our way. And you have a little bit of a, in essence, a road map here. A road map of destruction. And it only has two steps in it. It goes from idolatry, worshiping something other than God, to immorality. Not a very hard roadmap to follow, is it? When you will not worship God, you worship yourself and or anything else, immorality follows. That's what happens. And so in this chapter, it's just that short step It doesn't seem like it's that big a deal. But when we reach that climax of of our battle with God over the truth, God's done everything he can. Look what God did, as we saw in the first part of this chapter. God revealed himself to mankind, right? And then man rejected God. And then man rationalizes why he's rejecting God. And then man creates a substitute. And in a very large percentage of the time, the substitute's me. Matter of fact, there are several cults that, in essence, you are your own God. Mormonism being at the top of the list. You can become your own God. You can actually inherit your own planet. And for you men, it's a great deal. You get all these brides. You can create spirit, bra- spirit brides and you can have all the spirit babies you want and you can have those spirit babies come back here to earth and populate all the actual earthly children that are born here. That's how it works. No, by the way, there's kind of a little connection there between Islam and Mormonism. Because the reward for men is also all kinds of sex when you get to heaven. It's not what your Bible teaches. Matter of fact, it says when we get to heaven, we're going to be like the angels, neither male nor female. I don't know how that works out, but I know what he has done is good. And so all this worrying about how much sex you're going to have in heaven, God's word says the answer to that is zero. Amen? I don't know what he's replacing it with, but it's going to be good. You, you see the words that he's using here, gave them over. 
he uses the singular Greek word peridomai. And peridomai is only used in extremely, very intense verb sequencing. When Paul said, I give myself to be burned, he used the same word. It's that type of thing that you do because there is nothing else left to do. There's nowhere else to go. And when God begins to make those consequences known, you, you see the pain of sin has a purpose. The pain of sin isn't in a vacuum. It, it, it doesn't sit out there and it doesn't do what it does because God's just, you know, he just doesn't like you. You disobeyed him. It's like, well, I'll teach you. I'll just give you some pain. That's not God's thought process. God loves us, and so he allows things in our lives that are very painful so that we're going, well, that's very painful. I must be going the wrong way. You know, most everything that you learn in life that is athletic and or physical, don't you learn how to do it right? You learn to ride a bike. You learn how to ride a bike by you crashing a couple of times, right? And you realize I like the skin on my knees right where it's at. And so I learn to balance and stay on the pedals. And I I realize when I go around a corner, I need to get that one pedal up that's on the inside of the turn because otherwise it's going to dig into the ground. You're going to on the ground. You see, God is much more intelligent than that. So everything he does, he gives us an alternative to his way because he wants us to choose the right way by volition so that that love is active. It's not passive. We aren't just loving God because there's no other choice. We're doing what we're doing because we love him. We're making the right choices because we love him and he loves us. But he gives us the opposite opportunity. And here's the crazy thing. Because he loves us so much, he makes all those choices painful. They have a negative consequence because he loves us. Everything that God says no to, he says no to for a reason. Not just to kill your fun. When God says we're not supposed to be a drunkard, you know what? He doesn't need the CDC to give statistics about what alcohol does to your brain. You realize that every drop of alcohol that goes into your body is a poison. You all know that? 100%. Alcohol is a poison to your system. And so what does God say? Be not drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Spirit. So instead of being going to a bar and getting drunk, be filled with the Spirit of God. Why? Because he knows that you're going to end up with cirrhosis of the liver. He knows that you're going to get in a car and kill somebody. He knows that you're going to destroy your marriage. He knows that you're going to destroy your finances. And so he says, don't do that. And then he makes the steps necessary and makes them painful if you go that direction, and they're incremental. So the first time, you're like, man, you know, I don't like, I wasn't really all that fond of staying in the bathroom all night. That's God going, hello? We are so dumb sometimes. It's like God's telling us, He's giving us these things And he says these consequences have a purpose. That's repentance. He's not trying to, I hate your guts, so I'm going to make life miserable. That's not what he's doing. I love you, and I know what you're doing is going to destroy you, so I'm going to make what you do something that's really unpleasant. 
And so in that sense, there's an indirectness to the consequences. Because sin degrades us. It diminishes us. It dismisses our humanity. It dismisses the image of God in whom we have been made. It causes us no longer to be as he is. We start to look like the creation instead of the creator. We, we don't have the joy. We don't have the peace. We don't walk in that absolute understanding that God loves me. Now I, I don't know whether God loves me because my life's a wreck. You see, God tells us these things so that we will, will not go that way. You know, when you think of the, the things in your life, one of the things that we've been saved from is God's wrath. Amen? Praise the Lord. For God has not appointed us, First Thessalonians tells us, under wrath, but under salvation, because he loves us. But he's also said that we're supposed to walk in that newness of life, for behold, all things are becoming new. And so there's this wonderful thing that happens to us as we're this new creation in Christ, and behold, all things are becoming new. We start living our lives differently. We start seeing things for the way they are. We start to avoid the things that God says, well, you probably shouldn't go that way. And that certainly is within the confines of what we would call our sexuality as human beings. How many people today, all they want to do is get away from the, the consequences of sin. They don't want to get away from the sin. And so what do we do? Well, we have safe sex. Oh, we'll just, you know, we'll take some kind of drug. We'll go see some kind of counselor. We'll call it something different. You see, that's simply trying to escape the consequences of the sin. The wages of sin is still death. The consequences of sin are to make us turn. An interesting fact about a mink. Now, we don't see many mink coats anymore because they're raised, and I think it's kind of inhumane myself. But back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, when it seemed like everybody had, I think we had two or three mink coats inside of our closets at home. But there's a funny thing about minks. They will actually go out of their way to the point of death to keep from getting dirty. Man, I wish human beings were like that. We don't have that kind of innate response to filth. Matter of fact, David said we were actually created, conceived in sin. Born in it. We actually have a propensity towards it. And we have to be very careful because we gravitate towards things that are not good for us. You can surely see that in the creation account of Adam and Eve. You know, it's an interesting thing. I shared it actually last night at the high school camp. I shared it at the junior high camp too. There's actually only one problem with Adam and Eve's beginning story. They failed to believe God. They would not take God at his word. God simply said, of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, you shall not eat. And that tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They wouldn't believe God, and instead of believing God and doing what he said, they said, well, he must be keeping something from us. Is that not exactly the path of temptation? Well, God must be keeping something from us. Sure, I'm married, but that gal is cute. That man is handsome. He makes more money than my husband. 
Well, sure, God says that I'm supposed to be married to a, a, a woman because I'm a man, but you know what? I mean, there's a lot of people. I think some of those people must be right. I mean, it's got to be something. I mean, after all, Sean Penn says it's okay. <laughs> Charlize Theron, I mean, I mean, who doesn't get their information from her? You see, you have a choice. You can either believe God and walk in His ways, or you can disbelieve God and suffer the consequences. Some of those are direct. Some of those are indirect. God moves forward in this, and He gets very direct in a very direct sense. Look, sometimes God does stuff directly to His kids to say, look, you are going the wrong way. And you need to turn around. Flood of Noah, that would be God getting really direct. Amen? How about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? That was pretty direct. And for all the theological gymnastics that people try and play with that story there in the book of Genesis about what God did do or what he did not do, the fact of the matter is that those men burned in lust one for another. They were trying to have sexual relationships with other men And God said, no, this isn't going to work. They even tried to rape angels, if you remember the story. It's a pretty sick scene. And God said, no, this is like, no. This is not okay. But God punishes to restore. He knows exactly when to take out that that wrath and say, look, you're, you're going so far the wrong way. Don't do this. God wants to get to our heart. And when, when you see the word heart, we often misinterpret that in Scripture. It's not just kind of the feelings and the emotion. It's the seat of who you are as a human being. It's the totality of you. It's your will. It's your soul. It's your emotions. It's everything but the physical you. So when your heart's messed up, you're really messed up. It's more than just your mind being messed up. It's everything that you process with being messed up. You see, at the center of all of that is self-will. Self-aggrandizement. You you think yourself bigger than you really are. And sometimes you think, well, you know, I'm going to be my own God. And you know the crazy thing that people will often tell me? Well, you know, I really haven't suffered because of it. Look, just because you're that one person that's fallen out of a plane and landed in the ocean and lived to tell the story doesn't mean that everybody else is going to have the same result. You're not immune to gravity. You're also not immune to the spiritual laws that God's put within his word and in our hearts. And so when he says something's true, it is true. Whether you immediately suffer the consequences indirectly or whether you directly suffer the consequences because God says, wow, this person's really close, so I need to take evasive action for them right now. And really, when you look at the fall of Satan there in Isaiah 14, self-will's at the center of it, right? I will become like the Most High. I will exalt my throne above the heavens. Read the passage. I will, I will, I will, I will. 
Can I also remind you that's exactly what Satan tried to tempt Jesus with? That was the temptation. Look, if you just do what I say, see these kingdoms? They're all yours. And Jesus is going, look, they're already mine, pal. I don't know where you got the idea they're yours, but they're not. And so the Lord fights back with his word. He says, have you not heard? This is what the word of the Lord says. He says, well, command these rocks to, these rocks to become bread. He says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You see, we can either believe what God's word says about these subjects, or we can make up our own ruling on it. And really, at the end of the day, self is at the center of all sin, isn't it? Maybe it isn't for you, it is for me. I'll tell you for me, self is at the center of all sin. When I have a bad thought or a bad attitude or I say something I have to go back and apologize for, there's, there's things you just, I mean, I just blew it with those words. I shouldn't have said that. The reason I normally can pinpoint as to why I said them is I was trying to make it better for me. It was self. It was selfishness. And sexual sins are the prime example of that. And whether that's heterosexual sins or homosexual sins, sexual sins are the prime example of this in all of Scripture. Because they are the most self-centered and self-serving outside of marriage. That is you wanting to please you. At the very best, it's two people looking to please each other in a way that they're not supposed to please each other yet, as far as God's word's concerned. So sex outside of marriage, whether it's homosexual or heterosexual, is always wrong because it's selfish. It lacks the commitment of a marriage. It lacks the consistency of saying, we're going to raise these children. And I'm going to speak to you on another issue our next time in this book, and it's also going to be difficult. The reason, and don't let anybody tell you differently, the reason that we have so much abortion in this country is not because the government made it legal. It's because of sexual sin. It's because of fornication. It's because two people who are not married to each other have sexual relations, they produce a baby, and the baby dies because of the parent's sin. Now, having said that, if you're here tonight, God offers his absolute grace and his forgiveness for all sin, including the sin of abortion. But make no mistake, you can't say that it's okay. It's not okay. Fornication's not okay. The word that's used here to describe these sexual sins is really in a neutral context. The only reason it's even defined is because he tells us it's a woman unnaturally using her body and it's a man unnaturally using his body with another man. That's how we know that it's speaking of homosexuality. Other than that, it's all sexual sin outside of marriage. You see, it takes away man's dignity. It takes the takes away the value of human beings, of people. It objectifies. You know, we, we speak a lot in our culture, and in our remaining minutes, I just want to wrap this up. 
And I appreciate your patience. I know this isn't easy to listen to. It's not easy to deliver. Frankly, I got through the middle of the day today, and I go, Lord, I'm teaching on Psalm 1. I'm changing it. I know your grace will fall upon me, but I can't. We live at a time in our culture where we're willing to sacrifice human dignity and objectify people. That's why pornography is the multi-billion dollar industry it is in our country and in our world. That's why there are sex slaves in most major countries of this world is because we have diminished the value of the human being made in the image of God. You travel to Venezuela, you travel to Colombia, you travel to Southeast Asia. The staggering number of young ladies that are kidnapped from their families and sold into sexual slavery as objects is staggering. And they are destroyed. Many of them are dead before they reach their 18th birthday. Because man won't wake up and say, you know what? This is destroying the dignity of a human being. That's someone's daughter. That's someone's sister. That is someone's loved one. Oh no, it's just somebody for me. God help us if we, the church won't stand up and say, no, this is not okay. Paul even addressed this as he wrote to the church at Corinth because they had gotten to the place where, look, sex was like food. That's actually the analogy he used. His food is for the stomach and the stomach's for food. They're, they're using that argument to justify, well, it's just an urge. You know, sex, double-doubles, same thing. It's exactly the argument he made. That's what they were saying. Oh, no, it's not the same. You need some food to stay alive. The sexual relationship is a privilege designed for marriage between a man and a woman. plays into our world is just staggering. It's a website you can go there and it's, it's a review website and, it, it, and I would just encourage you be careful. It's called Top Ten Research but they, they take major subjects and just simply research them as close as they can. But when they did this study, and it was a few years ago, as I was looking at it, they have a little countdown timer and it was the amount of money spent on pornography per second. I was on this site to download the information I'm about to give you for less than two minutes. In that two minutes, a little over a million dollars was spent on pornography. When you look at our world today, by the way, China is the number one consumer of pornography. The United States is the number one producer of pornography. People here in the United States spend about 16 or so billion dollars a year on pornography. In China, it's 28 billion dollars a year. Now, let me give you an idea how big a number that is. That is enough 
to feed the impoverished countries of the world, 62% of them for that whole year. That's how much money that is. On self. When we fail to heed God's plan for sexuality, we're destroying the very people for whom Christ died. We must get this right, folks. And we got to stop dancing around the issue. With regard to what this passage clearly speaks about, we need not even worry about how God views marriage because marriage is so clearly defined that in the beginning he made them male and female. I don't know what everybody doesn't get about that. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and a woman will leave her home. So so that's almost silly to talk about. But this passage clearly speaks to the deepest expression of man's propensity to sexual sin. And so God says for this reason, chief case in point, homosexuality. That's what he's doing here. He's using it as an example of the worst of the worst. Now, it's going to offend some people. I realize that. But that's what it says. It doesn't make the people worse. It makes the consequences of the sin down near the bottom of the barrel. In other words, when a culture sinks to that level, they're really in deep trouble. When people can no longer distinguish that which is very clear through the creation. Remember where we started? The creation itself testifies of God's handiwork. You see, when you can't see that a man having sex with another man is not in God's created order, there's something seriously wrong with your capacity to understand truth. And so God says when it gets to that level... The world's in trouble. It's not enlightened. It's not becoming more loving. Love doesn't win. Love loses when we redefine love. Because God defined love. God defined it. We are not in this church in any way, shape, or form homophobic. But we are absolutely Christocentric. So God is God. And so when we speak of these things, we must have God's viewpoint on them. We have to recount what the Lord himself has said about it. Not make up our own narrative and our own truth. And I want to be really clear. Because we've had phone calls, and and the question usually is something like this, are you a gay-affirming church? And I will usually respond, we are a humanity-affirming church. We love people. But if you're asking if we're going to condone the sin of homosexuality, the answer is no. 
because it destroys people's lives. Do we love all people? Absolutely, yes, including homosexuals. Do we hate anyone? Absolutely, no. No matter who they are, where they've been, what they've done. But we have to have God's view of what he clearly has spoken to us. And so as you think on this passage, it's going to be a tough one for you. It's going to be a tough one. It's going to touch your family. You're probably going to have somebody in your life with whom you're going to have to say, I love you, but I don't love the sin that you're engaged in. Can I tell you that's the deepest kind of love you can have for somebody? When you can love somebody enough to say, I I love you, I'll give my life for you, but I'm never going to tell you that that's okay. That means you really love them. If you don't love them, then you tell them that they're okay with God when God said they're not okay with God. That's as unloving as you can be because that means you don't care about their soul. And we care about men's souls as believers. Amen? That's what we're concerned with. I'm not concerned whether someone gets to live in a lifestyle that they appreciate or think is better than another lifestyle. I'm concerned that that person makes it to heaven. That's what I'm concerned with. I'm not concerned with them liking me or caring for me or wondering whether my opinion is right because I didn't make it up. God did. God told me what my opinion is on the subject. He spoke it very clearly. And it gets even in depth more when we finish this chapter because it goes so far as to say even those who approve of such things are in trouble with God. So don't think for a moment you're off the hook because you're trying to be nice. Because you're trying to avoid a confrontation. Jesus said you're going to be counted as sheep to the slaughter for my sake. The people are going to hate you. Even your own family may do that. But if you really love people, if you really care for their souls, then you'll tell them the truth about what the Bible says and then offer them the hope that is in Jesus Christ. Remind them that God loves them and that he can set them free, that they've been fed a bunch of lies. There's so many things floating around our world. Probably not a person in here who hasn't heard, well, you know, there's a gay gene. There is no gay gene. That is a lie. The first man who received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, by the way, for his research in the human genome, said homosexuality is not inherent within the gene structure of human beings. And yet, Well, they can't help themselves. Yeah, well, unfortunately, they can. And that's why we offer them the hope of the cross and a God that loves them and someone that is there for them in those dark moments when they don't know whether they're going to make it or not. We have to be careful, family. When Francis Collins said those things, 
he took so much heat. And you know what's crazy? Is that whole story about the gay gene is from one study in 1993 of less than a dozen pairs of genetically identical twins where one happened to be homosexual and the other was not a homosexual in a general sense. And so they tried to spot genetic markers. Anybody else does that? We call that reverse engineering. You simply look at the product and you say, okay, what's different about A or B? But yet the world goes around speaking of these things as if God didn't know what he was doing. That somehow God made mistakes. And he openly says this is not his plan, but then he makes a whole bunch of people who cannot help themselves but to be in a place that God calls sin. That's not a loving God. That's not an omniscient, an omnipotent God. That would be a very ineffective God. God knew what he was doing. He set parameters for our sexuality. And he said, stay within them. Because that keeps you from the consequences that are here and now. And more importantly, the consequences that are here and later. Amen? Would you stand and let's pray. Father, I want to pray. Lord, we just want to lift up probably... Many of us know somebody who's struggling in some area of their sexuality and and many of us know people who are struggling with same-sex attraction and we pray that you'd make us soft and kind and gentle and loving and tender and open. God, that we wouldn't be afraid, we wouldn't shame, but that we would speak the truth, Lord. We can't have one without the other, and and we admit to you that's hard. Sometimes it's painful. It's very difficult. And so, Lord, give us grace to speak words that are your words, not mine, not ours. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the power of your word. We pray that you would set a revival in our land. Lord, that you would undo the unfruitful works of darkness that have overcome our country. And God, as we've been praying this week already, how we thank you for the victories we've already seen. We know that greater is he who's in us than he who's in this world. And so, Father, we pray that you would make us strong and mighty with the truth, in love, with grace and truth. We thank you. We praise you. We bless you, and we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.